Well, good morning, everybody. So, um, first, let me say I had a printer problem this morning. My sermon wouldn't print, so I sent the file over to Lyle to print, and he printed it, but I sent him the wrong one. I sent him the one in small, single-space font. So I'm going to be... It may seem like I'm reading more this morning rather than preaching, so forgive me, but I'll do my best. Anna's waving her glasses at me. I I probably... (laughs) Joe actually brought a pair for me to try on, but I don't need those. So... We are in the fourth week of Advent. We've been on a four-week journey to Christmas, and during this season of Advent, we've been encouraging the community to look up, to look up, and that as we paused from the frenetic pace of life in modern society, and as we gaze toward God, hope would hold us, beauty would recreate us, joy would awaken us, and love would strengthen us. Hopefully, our efforts have been a source of strength and comfort in what we can be in what can be a rather challenging season for many. We chose the theme of look up because doing so gives us the opportunity to have the experience of awakening or new awareness or epiphany. Maybe you've experienced this in small ways in your life such as when light shines from a new angle and you see a different more human side of a friend or a loved one and you're struck by their beauty. Or maybe you've had this kind of experience by encountering a grand view or vista, like on a visit to the Grand Canyon, or to the mountains, or the ocean, or on an airplane flight. These are often spiritual experiences because they are catalysts for a change in perspective and values. There have even been studies on how astronauts are often changed from the experience of seeing Earth from space. What this does to them is called the overview effect. And it's been both positive and negative depending on the person. Some report feeling euphoric. Some feel incredibly sad. One called it a truly transformative experience of wonder and awe, of unity with nature, and of universal brotherhood. For many, it leads to a renewed sense of purpose and an increased sense of connection to other people and the earth as a whole. The Syrian astronaut Mohammed Faris said, From space I saw the earth, indescribably beautiful, with the scars of national boundaries removed. It seems as though the psyche of the astronaut is often reshaped by seeing the sun and the stars and our planet from a new angle, and that it often leads the viewer to ask, What is best for this planet? Rather than, What is best for that one area right there? or that one nation, or that one group, or that one river. No, what is best for the planet? The overview effect, it challenges our human-made constructs, our attempts at rigid compartmentalization and control. We have a spiritual discipline that is similar to the overview effect. We call it visio divina, or divine seeing. At times, our community, uh, we practice Lectio Divina, where we spend several minutes listening to a sacred text repeatedly read and opening ourselves 
to deeper layers of meaning. Visio Divina is similar, except our focus is on an image rather than a text. We've practiced this at times here before, and if you're like me, you found that Visio sometimes lets us finally see what we've only been looking at previously. I thought, in my planning for this sermon, we might especially need something like this when it comes to the Christmas story. Most of us here are familiar with the story, which can be a problem, believe it or not. Most of us have a mashup of Christmas stories from the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Luke, and Four Christmases in our minds. That's a, that's a movie, Four Christmases. Okay, never mind. Saw it last night. We have nativity scenes in our minds where the shepherds and the wise men are in one another's stories, which is actually inaccurate. Luke and Matthew, the Gospels, each tell different Christmas stories, and they each have their own rhetorical purpose. Matthew wants to show how Jesus is the new king and that the insiders will reject him, and so Matthew brings in foreign dignitaries, the wise men. But Luke wants to show how Jesus is the universal savior that stands in opposition to the domination systems of our world. So Luke brings in shepherds rather than wise men. Our Christmas text this morning that has been read, it comes from Luke, so there won't be any wise guys uh, up here except for the one standing right here. So I'm sorry, haha, thank you. And I would like us to practice an extended Visio Divina using this painting here. It's called Shepherds, and it's by the artist John August Swanson. Can everybody see it? I'm kind of in the way for some of you. I'm sorry. Our story begins in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And Luke writes, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their town to register. Now, these three verses, you may have glossed over them. They may seem inconsequential. They may not seem like much. They're easy to simply take as Luke setting the historical context for us, but there's a lot more here than just that. The longer I live and reflect on Jesus' words in our Bible, the more necessary I think it is that we pay attention to the power dynamics of the stories, how power is allocated and used in the stories and in our own society, and how great reversals of values and dynamics are often proposed in our scriptures. For so many years in our society, the dominant Christian narrative has been focused on the individual's personal salvation rather than these things. But we can't really understand the story unless we understand the context and the power dynamics. It was common that those under Roman imperialism would experience poverty and hunger and disease and day-to-day -day subsistence was incredibly difficult. The purpose of Augustus' census, Caesar's census, would have been to be able to further tax and exploit all these people, the Jews included. The census was probably not intended to ensure that they had adequate infrastructure or universal pre-K in place for population growth. Instead, it was to fill Caesar's bank account. Using our image by Swanson before us, maybe we would say that Caesar lived in one of the beautiful structures depicted in the top right corner over there of the painting, while the forgotten are in a shack at the forefront. 
I find it interesting that Luke begins the nativity story the way he sets this whole thing up. He name drops two incredibly powerful people, the ruler of the Roman Empire and the governor of Syria, and yet the baby, the supposed focus of the story, goes completely unnamed until the very end of the section. It's as if Luke wants us to begin by focusing on the way things are. Our attention is given to those who hold worldly prestige and power. And then as he unfolds the story, he begins to help us refocus on the way things could be. From the way things are to the way things could be, he invites a shift in our focus. Staying in touch with both of these, the way things are and the way things could be, is the perennial challenge for the Christian. The flow and structure of the story help us do that as our focus shifts from the powerful who can send an entire empire scurrying about with a decree and toward the meek, the humble, those born on the margins of society, of an already marginalized town and society. Literally, our focus is invited to shift toward the, t- toward the nameless nobodies of the world. The world still has its Caesars today. Believe it or not, they occupy both formal and informal positions of authority. Sometimes they're over nations, and sometimes they're over families, friends, employees, homeowners associations. Like the Caesar of our nativity story, they issue decrees without regard for how their demands multiply the difficulties and suffering of those around them. They are hyper-focused on what they've conquered and what they will conquer next. They often use their power as a penetrating reminder of their place at the top of the hierarchy and to remind others of their required subordination. The Caesars of today rule not through sharing power or using power with others, but instead by using power over others, often through intimidation and fear. And unfortunately, we tend to promote these kind of people to places of authority in our society, which kind of says something about us, says something about the human condition, don't you think? I mean, why do we consistently put Caesars in charge? What does that say about us? Maybe there's part of us that really believes this kind of use of power is the only way to make it through this world. This seems to be true of Caesar Augustus. In that day, there is a famous inscription that's been found from 9 BC that speaks of Augustus' birth as birth of the Son of God, as a Savior, as one who will bring peace to the world. And of course, he did bring a kind of peace, but it was an enforced peace sustained via the threat of brutality. Who, I ask you, are the Caesars in your life that you encounter? Think about that for just a moment. Now, the temptation, of course, is to see Caesar in others and never in ourselves, which is why we are called to look up, to cast our eyes toward God, to see the many ways that the spirit of Caesar lives both in our society and in our own hearts today. The Caesar in us, the Caesar in me, often acts in its own best interest and is out of touch with the needs and pains of those around us. The Caesar in me wants to live insulated from the common humanity we share with everyone, that we share, for example, with 
the displaced refugees at our southern border right now. The Caesar in us likes its fragile ego to be propped up by the way our decrees can inconvenience others. Pausing, stopping to reflect, to look up, to be reoriented helps us to see this. In what ways does Caesar live in you this morning? Without judging it, can you, can you see it? Can you acknowledge it and be open to how God is prompting you to live differently? Now, if our story stopped there, it wouldn't be gospel. It wouldn't be good news. It would just be another iteration of the news that we hear every day. But here's what makes our sacred text sacred. The author helps us shift our focus from the powerful to the peasant. The peasant tradesman, his young pregnant fiance, and a baby born in a non-traditional family structure. He writes, So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Let's think about this humble family for a minute. Imagine you've just been forced to walk 70 miles while pregnant with a full-term baby. You're going to a small, rural town that is typically two to three hundred people. Great, you think. Maybe I'll get lucky enough to find a veterinarian to help birth this baby. Maybe while you are still on the way, you begin to feel the onset of labor pains. So your pace slows, but a song in your heart sustains you. A song about the God who binds your wounds, who fills empty bowls, who lifts the humble from the ashes. This keeps your anxiety at bay and your feet shuffling forward. You finally arrive, long after most others, and your legs and feet are throbbing. Of course there's no place to stay, you think, even though this is your partner's hometown. Why should his cousins get the guest room? They're not pregnant. They only walked a few miles to get here. Your partner returns to tell you that, in fact, all the other relatives' guest rooms are also occupied, and you begin to wonder if maybe your out-of-wedlock pregnancy has something to do with this. Maybe it's just too much shame for the family to face in this small town. But those thoughts are soon evicted by a pulsating pain. This baby is coming, and coming soon. Just give us a corner, you yell, and seeing the Caesar within themselves, they come to their senses and say sheepishly, yes, of course, please, this way. They take you to an adjacent room where they typically keep a few scrawny livestock. Cynicism flashes within you and you think, nope, not even a vet, just a vet's patience in here. But alongside it, a prayer surfaces from somewhere deeper. Hold me, great mother of life. Lift us from the depths. The birth is a blur, and you finally see the one that you've only felt and heard for nine months. And as he's laid on your chest, Joseph is handed a new, clean linen cloth, 
a true gift, and he drapes it over you both. You whisper to the rooting little one, she fills the hungry with good things. Now, what do you feel as you step into this story? Anger, relief, gratitude, hope? What does it touch in your own story? And what does it lead you to want to do? Earlier, Aurelia provided a reflection on what Mary said when she found out that she was pregnant. And Kristen read the text for us, Mary's Magnificat. We just now heard parts of it as well in that reflection. It's now famously known as the Magnificat, and it is the longest set of words spoken by a woman in the New Testament. It can also be considered the first Christmas carol. At first glance, we might think, oh, that's sweet. Good for her. She's singing a little, he's got the whole world in his hands song. That's really cute. That's nice, but this is so much more than that. In recent history, public recitation of the Magnificat has been banned on three separate occasions because those in power considered it to be too subversive. During the British rule of India, the Magnificat was prohibited from being sung in church. In the 1980s, Guatemala's government decided Mary's words about God's preferential love for the poor were too dangerous and revolutionary. The song had been stirring Guatemala's impoverished masses and inspiring them to see what the world could be. And it was calling them to look up too much. I suppose so. Their government banned any public reading of Mary's words. Also, in the late 1970s in Argentina, the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo placed the Magnificat's words on posters throughout the plaza to protest their children's disappearance under the military dictatorship. And in response, the government outlawed any public display of Mary's words. These are powerful words. These are subversive words. The Caesars of the world are right to fear these words. They speak of a new way. They speak of a new rule breaking in to this one. Mary was our first Robin Hood singing, He brings down rulers from their thrones and he lifts the humble. He fills the hungry and he sends away the rich empty. And just as Caesar lives today, so does Mary. I see Mary in the lives of groups such as the Catholic advocacy group, Nuns on a Bus. I see Mary alive in the group, Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. Mary lives in the long line of liberation theologies which open our eyes to the presence of evil in our systems and social structures and declare that we all need liberation whether we're at the center or on the margins. Mary lives. Do you know a Mary in your life? And where are you called to be Mary in this world? Now consider with me one last group in our story. So we talked about Augustus up there in the corner, Mary and Joseph and the unnamed baby here in the shack. Consider the shepherds here to the left. Just outside the community, 
past the Alsips and down past the single blinking stoplight. Down a dirt road, a group of men are huddled around a fire. They work and live in these fields, although the term fields might be a bit too flattering. It's really just the place that no one else wanted and where they and their livestock would be out of the way, kind of like the cattle pens you'll experience when you get southeast of Lubbock, Texas. That's where the shepherds live. Our characters are shepherds, which is to say they probably live alone for long periods of time. They are often on the move, taking the flock from place to place. They endure weather that could be all but unbearable with heat and cold and drought and rain and lightning. Some of them own their own flocks, but many of them are hired hands who are neglected or exploited by their employers. Maybe their employers hold their legal documents for safekeeping. Admittedly, they can be an unpolished crowd. Maybe they're the oil field workers or the strip club workers of their day. Some towns even have ordinances barring them from entering the city limits. They're almost always considered ritually unclean by the religious leaders because their work keeps them from religious observances. In fact, it's likely they had lived on the margins of society and religious life for so long that they're beginning to think that this is where they actually belong. Do you know any shepherds? <coughs> now, if I were writing this story, I don't think I would send angels to these kinds of people. I like to imagine that the angels actually started, started by visiting those in power. I imagine that first they went to Caesar and they said, Caesar, your salvation has come. To which he said, my salvation, my army is my salvation. Have you not heard that with them I keep the world at peace? The beautiful frescoes painted on the walls of his palace showing his military victories would have made it difficult to notice the very subtle luminescence of the angels as they walked away. I imagine next the angels went to the home of one of the wealthy landowners, an official citizen of the state, maybe a senator, where a party was being held and the angels told them, your salvation has come. But they were laughed at, mocked, and someone even threw a jeweled goblet at them saying, our laws are our salvation. Haven't you heard of the 12 tables of Rome, Roman law? These are our salvation. These protect us citizens. The lavish clothes of the dinner guests and the extravagant food and wine would have made the angels look awkwardly out of place. Someone probably said under their breath, who shows up to a party dressed like this? Have they no regard for propriety and decorum? It separates us from the shepherds. Shepherds, huh? Maybe the angels thought, and so off they went. You know the story from there. But have you noticed what the angels say to the shepherds? I find it really surprising. They say, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. They don't say, we are the sign. You can believe because you saw angels. No. Instead, they say, you can believe all of this, not because you've seen angels, but you can believe all of this when you find God in the most unassuming and unlikely of places. In fact, 
the last place you would ever think to find God, like lying in a manger or like shepherds in a field. We might say today that the shepherds are the ones who would never expect that God would notice and include them in this grand story about Jesus. They are the ones like you and me who would say, I'm too young, I'm too old, I'm too middle-aged, I printed my sermon in the wrong font, I'm too gay, I'm too poor, I'm too busy, I'm just too me for God to use me. What is it for you? Verse 20 in our text says that as they returned, they were glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. They were amazed and marveling, not just at angels, but that angels would speak to them. Marveling not because God has chosen to turn the world upside down, but instead because God has chosen to include them and Mary and Joseph and you and me in the world's turning. Marveling not because there was a new army, a new symbol of violence marching against Caesar, but marveling instead because there was a new baby, a symbol of life being born in opposition to all that Caesar stands for. Our story concludes by saying that Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And likewise, as we continue our journey toward Christmas, may God continue to transform us as we look up to see God the faithful mother, God the good shepherd, God the great contrarian who comes among us like this, lifting the lowly, filling the hungry, and welcoming the outsider. Amen.